Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, everybody. My name is Kyle Clarich, and I'm uh, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And today I am interviewing the expert on mitral regurgitation, Dr. McAleed, who's professor of cardiovascular medicine and is one of our go-to people in the cardiac catheterization lab for structural heart disease interventions. And our topic today is to discuss the transcatheter mitral valve repair, primarily in patients with secondary versus primary mitral regurgitation. So we're talking about patients with severe mitral regurgitation and the cause of it being either a secondary cause or a primary cause. And we're really going to focus on those with secondary, but maybe I'll start out by having our expert, Dr. McAleed, uh, describe for us the difference and what the difference between that primary versus secondary mitral regurgitation would be. Mac, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I think that's a really important question and point to for us to always try to understand uh, when we're seeing a patient is the mitral regurgitation primary or secondary. And what we mean by that is is the mitral regurgitation due to an organic problem of the mitral valve leaflets? Um, and that would be primary mitral regurgitation. That would include like prolapse or flail. And secondary mitral regurgitation, on the other hand, is a problem where the leaflets of the valve are not coming together because they are either being pulled down or uh, they're being tensioned by ventricular enlargement or because the annulus is enlarged as well. And so it's usually a combination of those two things. So we often refer to secondary mitral regurgitation as a problem of the ventricle rather than a problem of the, the leaflets itself. Great, well, that's very helpful. So patients that would have a flail, that would be the type of person that might have a ruptured cord or it just a leaflet, the cords may be so stretched that it's unsupported or they could have, uh, and that would be the case of most patients with sort of the prolapse of the mitral valve that we hear so much about. But recently, uh, we've also come to find out that secondary mitral regurgitation can also be very uh, disabling uh, dis uh, to patients with increased shortness of breath, even when they're treated along guideline-directed medical management for their problem with their left ventricle. So that secondary left ventricular problem needs to be treated first. And if they're still left with severe mitral regurgitation, you might attempt a structural intervention to try to do clipping or a mitral clip of the mitral valve. So is that accurate, do you think, of what you just said? Yes, yeah, I think that that's exactly right. Um, what do you think the assessment of the mitral regurgitation uh, would be uh, in secondary or left ventricular problem causing the mitral regurgitation uh, in terms of the ability to know whether mitral clip could be used? That's a really good question. I, one of the biggest factors that we look at um, when we're assessing a candidacy is, is if a patient has been um, treated for their heart failure first with 
when they have secondary mitral regurgitation. So that includes medications being optimized. And typically we think of beta blockers and uh, ACE inhibitors, even also nephrolysin inhibitors. Those are all different classes of medications that we like patients to be on the highest tolerated doses of those um, before considering them for um, an edge-to-edge -edge repair with a device like MitraClip. And also if a patient has um, dyssynchrony, which is a complicated term that basically means a discoordinated contraction of their heart, some of those patients might benefit from a specialized pacemaker too. And it's a specialized uh, pacemaker that paces both sides of the ventricle. And so we always like to consider that as well um, in patients because sometimes the, the secondary mitral regurgitation might get better with those um, efforts. But if it doesn't, or if they're not a candidate or don't tolerate some of those things, that's where we then look at um, edge to edge repair. So we work really hard in cardiology then to treat the heart underlying heart problem, the, the left ventricular dysfunction uh, using a variety of medications. And I think in our clinic, we typically will have them evaluated by a heart failure specialist to be sure that that's true and see if they're actually a candidate for any um, device therapies. And you mentioned the uh, cardiac resynchronization for a dyssynchronous heart, which I think is a neat uh, way to think about pacing. And many of these patients also would maybe require a defibrillator. So there's been a lot of that going on in the background, but assuming that we've done all of that heavy lifting in the heart failure with our heart failure specialists, and they still have significant mitral regurgitation, usually moderately severe or severe, uh, then we would want them to be evaluated by you to see if they would maybe improve their functional status by getting rid of the mitral regurgitation with your procedure. Yeah. Um, there has been a little bit of, uh, I wanna say, um, discussion in the literature about this edge-to-edge -edge repair uh, in secondary mitral regurgitation in the literature, two large trials that kind of came out with different results. And maybe our audience would be interested in your thoughts on why that was and how that plays out in our thinking about, because I know we're using a lot of this therapy in our own, in our own patients here. Absolutely, we are. We're using it quite a bit. And it's um, been a very powerful tool, very um, beneficial tool. Um, and the, the, the two different trials that um, were published that were randomized trials, I think are still, there's still a lot of questions that were raised because of the different results. Um, we, we had the Mitra FR trial, which was um, a randomized trial of MitraClip versus medical therapy in patients with secondary mitral regurgitation. And that included about 300 patients that, and the primary outcome was looked at at one year. And that trial had um, kind of a neutral, it showed a neutral effect of MitraClip. It didn't really show a signal of benefit um, or, or, and so the trial was considered a negative trial. Um, on the other hand, the COAP trial, which was a larger trial, it was over 600 patients and their primary um, outcome was at two years and they looked at mortality and they also looked at heart failure rehospitalizations. And both of those were significantly less in the patients who were treated with MitraClip. 
And so some of the theories about why the results were so different, there's, there's some differences in the population. One was that the mitral FR patients had technically less severe mitral regurgitation. Um, on average, their um, regurgitant opening size was 0.3 versus 0.4. And then also the, um, the ventricles were bigger so the patients in mitral FR had more advanced ventricular dysfunction too. And the other thing was that the, the requirement for optimized heart failure therapy was not as rigorous in the mitral FR trial, whereas in the COAP trial, it was very rigorous and the patients really had to be on the highest tolerated heart failure medication doses. So besides just the size of the trial being bigger with COAP and they looked at two-year outcomes, um, I think that's why I, you know, I tend to rely a little more on the co-op data, and that was a U.S. trial as well, whereas MitraFAR was a, uh, performed in France. Um, so we rely mostly on the co-op data to select our patients um, who might benefit. It, that does speak to what you were saying before, that we really have to be rigorous about um, making sure our patients are treated along guideline-directed uh, standards for heart failure. Um, but did the COAP trial also, or either one of the trials, I guess, use any resynchronization with uh, device uh, pacing, for instance, that type of thing? It was, it was in the requirements um, in patients who were candidates. And typically, it's patients who um, had um, left bundle branch morphology with a, a wide QRS. Um, I don't know off the top of my head how many of those patients um, had received it, but but it was part of the, the criteria. So if they met criteria, they would have received it and that would be our practice here. So mm -hmm. that's very interesting. Well, thank you for making that clarification because I think a lot of people have wondered and there's been, and you simplified it very well for our audience, I think, to understand why we have embraced the COAP trial data and use it in our practice to justify moving on to these therapies in patients with severe mitral regurgitation um, in heart failure. Um, what, are, what do you think the current role for edge-to-edge -edge, uh, repair is in the treatment of uh, mitral regurgitation? I mean, we kind, of, we kind of have been down that road, but could you just clarify it, maybe summarize it for the audience? Which patients should they be referring, uh, or maybe they start with heart failure and then the heart failure specialist refers to the structural heart disease? How does that go? And in what patient population would you like to see uh, moved into the direction of a, of a mitral edge-to-edge -edge repair? Sure, yeah, I think, um, well, I think the, the once it's recognized that a patient has significant mitral regurgitation and is found to be secondary, I think a heart failure specialist is, is a, a really important component just to make sure the patient has been optimized on the medical therapy. Um, and once that, that has been done and the mitral regurgitation is reassessed at a certain point, typically we would, we would reassess um, after they're on their highest tolerated doses of heart failure med medical therapy, usually a, a three-month period or so. Then we would reassess. And typically at that point, if there's still severe mitral regurgitation or moderate to severe, and the, they're still having symptoms, then we would... Um, look into possible edge-to-edge -edge repair. And one of our cutoffs is um, 
left ventricular ejection fraction of 20%. That was one of the cutoffs that was used in the co-op trial and an end systolic dimension of 70 or, or less. So those patients are considered the, the better candidates for edge to edge repair. And then we look at their anatomy on transesophageal echo imaging, and we look to see if their, um, their leaflet morphology is suitable. We look at the length of the leaflets and the gap in coaptation. And if they have good anatomy at that point, then we could proceed with edge to edge repair um, with MitraClip. We also have randomized trial looking at MitraClip and the Pascal device to see whether the Pascal device can achieve um, comparable or better outcomes. So that's an option. Um, if the anatomy is not good for MitraClip, let's say um, the posterior leaflet is too short or, um, or there's also severe mitral annular calcification and we can't, uh, we're worried about causing too small of a mitral valve with a clip, then uh, we can also look into replacement as an option. And we have clinical trials for transcatheter replacement um, with various devices that are dedicated for the mitral valve. And those are um, in, still in the investigational stage. So, but those are, we have several different trials that, that we have uh, available to us. So a patient would be referred to um, our valvular heart disease, uh, structural heart disease clinic with an eye towards uh, TEE or transesophageal imaging in order to best assess the valve. But if they don't make criteria for edge to edge, we are having some trials the patient could choose to enroll in by putting a valve in MAC or the valve in the mitral annulus, which is heavily calcified, which is one of the more common things I think I see as a trans, as an imager, as a limitation for these edge-to-edge -edge repairs. So. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, um, it, it's, that comes down to anatomy. So we'll, we look then at the anatomy and we see if a clip is possible. And if not, then exactly, like you said, uh, replacement trials. Yeah, that's great. Well, it's nice to know uh, that we should refer patients that are maximally medically treated, and that could include a device for resynchronization with a pacemaker. Um, and then if they're still having symptoms that we could try to repair with edge to edge, and even if that is not necessarily a possibility, then we do have some ongoing trials for putting valves, transcatheter valves into the mitral annulus uh, to improve the leakage and without then also creating stenosis, which is one of the possibilities with an edge to edge repair. Um, and maybe that's, that leads into one last question and that would be, what are the common complications or worries that you have when you do take a patient uh, to, the, to, the, to the cath lab to place an edge to edge repair? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the the main considerations is um, that it's a general anesthesia procedure where we still rely heavily on transesophageal echo imaging to guide the procedure. And um, that uh, typically requires general anesthesia. So that's one of the biggest things for patients to be aware of. So there's a little bit longer recovery time associated with general anesthesia, but most patients are candidates for that. Um, it, we go into the femoral vein, and so that's how we access um, the heart, is through the femoral vein in the groin, and the bleeding complications from that approach are pretty low, uh, 
pretty low risk of bleeding, less than 1% major bleeding risk. Other risks are in the two to 3% range, and that includes the clip coming off of one leaflet, which is one of the, uh, the things that we do our best to avoid by selecting patients who have good anatomy. And so the rate of that is less than 1%. Um, and uh, other complications also are, are pretty rare. So we, we see it as a pretty safe procedure actually. And most patients um, can go home the next day after the procedure. And I guess um, the question, maybe the patients and physicians alike would be wondering if the clip does become uh, unclipped, where does it go? Yeah, um, theoretically the clip um, could, there is a, a, a small risk of the clip coming off completely and, and even embolizing. There's rare case reports of that, but uh, we haven't seen that in our practice. Um, the, the rate of the clip coming off of one leaflet is less than 1%. Um, but if it comes off of one leaflet, it stays attached to the other, the other one. But then there's recurrent significant leakage in that case. So fortunately, that's very rare in our experience. But it is something for for our patients to be aware of. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good point. And then, would you be able to retrieve the clip that came off and place a new one, or is that then lead the patient to a surgical approach? If if that happens and the clip is still attached to one leaflet, typically um, another clip could be placed, but that specific clip can't be removed after it's already been released. If it okay. happened during the procedure before the clip is released, then the clip could still be repositioned. Um, so it kind of depends on, on those factors. But um, oftentimes, though, if that does happen, we're looking more at a surgical approach at that point because the, the clip being on the valve will often lead to a suboptimal repair with just simply another clip. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that I know it's a very rare complication, thankfully, and the fact that we've not seen one embolize is very reassuring, and very uh, and uh, and it's a very uh, the procedure. When I've been in those with you, we've also watched very carefully to make sure we don't create too tight of a valve, uh, leading to mitral stenosis or narrowing of the valve that could be detrimental. But with it being monitored so closely at the time we typically look at that before you ever release the clip so we can reposition. And sometimes it does lead to the fact that we might not be able to place another clip or some other um, opportunities may exist down the road if that gets too tight. But I haven't seen that happen too often either, where it gets too tight that we can't either reposition or just accept uh, maybe a less than perfect result just so that we don't get stenosis. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's always a balance. And we also measure the pressure during the procedure. Sometimes that's a helpful tool in addition to all of our TEE information, just to see if, if the pressure is coming down or going up. But it's often a trade-off. We are trading some narrowing of the valve for a repair with this approach. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's been it's been very well tolerated by our patients and 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 they typically seem to, recover very quickly. Um, how soon do they notice a res an improvement in their shortness of breath if they have that done? And then successfully? Kind of, I think the biggest factor there is how bad the leakage was in the first place. Um, I've seen with secondary MR patients in the hospital, a dramatic uh, improvement within 24 hours 
when it's very severe mitral regurgitation, similar to like what we would see with a flail mitral valve. Um, if it's if it's just um, moderate to severe mitral regurgitation, it often will take longer to notice any improvement. So that's what I've noticed anecdotally as the, the biggest factor of how soon patients will notice um, a difference. Oh, that's great. Well, I tell you, our patients really appreciate the work you're doing uh, in the structural heart disease team and the approach you're taking and how far we've come with these patients with secondary or what we sometimes say is val uh, ventricular dysfunction leading to leaky valves, secondary mitral regurgitation. So thank you for all the work and the research you're doing and the pushing the envelope all the time. And uh, we appreciate uh, the audience now listening. And if you, of course, if you have questions, let us know um, electronically, of course, since this is pre-recorded, <laughs> but we will be happy to answer your questions uh, down the road. Mac, thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks for the opportunity and thanks for all your help. We wouldn't be able to do MitroClips without you. Well, it's a, it's a great pleasure. It's a great to be part of the team. Well, thank you everybody for listening. We'll look forward to another conversation with the experts in the near future. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.